God, we thank you for uh, the fact that we could come here and gather as a community, as a group of friends and family. And, and God, I, I, I pray that you are lifted up this morning. Um, but God, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you do work in our hearts now as we open scripture, as we seek your character, and as we seek what it means for us to follow so we give this time over to you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We sat about this morning, I'm preaching out of our gospel passage that we just heard. And um, it, it's a fun passage, and traditionally we call the, the portion of our, uh, of our reading this morning the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. But there, there are actually two parables in the chapter in the midst of three. And these parables each tell a different story, but kind of with the same points. And they actually end with the parable of the lost son, where Jesus has these really intricate uh, details that are purposefully placed. And so I'm actually going to walk us through, up through the parable of the lost son so we could see some of the things that Jesus is actually communicating here. And uh, one of the things about this specific chapter, and I would say the chapter before it, chapter 14, they're actually some of the interactions that most likely led them to seek to crucify Jesus. And the reason why is because he takes kind of the world and society as they might know it, and he challenges it. He kind of deconstructs it, and then he kind of speaks a vision, a new vision of hope. And uh, that's, what, that's what the kingdom is about. It's about hope in the midst of our world. And chapter 15 starts with a crowd of all different types of people. And I don't know about you, I mean, Facebook is just even a testament to this. It's really hard to make a statement uh, where a group of multiple types of people will understand what you are saying, and Jesus does it brilliantly in this chapter. But this crowd and this conversation that Jesus has in Luke 15 actually starts earlier in chapter 14, where Jesus on the Sabbath is at a Pharisee's house, uh, and, and on the Sabbath, there's somebody there that most likely has some sort of swelling in their body. And Jesus asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he heals this person. And so there's this kind of moment where they're like, okay, what's going on here? Because he's beginning to challenge kind of their laws based on uh, how they would interpret and live out the Torah. And then all these types of people start to follow Jesus, and a lot of them are rejects from society, and then you have the religious leaders there. And Jesus begins to speak to them, and he begins to speak to all of them. And he talks about this party that was thrown, this banquet, and who was invited, but then didn't show up, and then who was invited after that. And then what he does with this crowd is he doesn't just invite them, he actually issues a really tough challenge. This is that, that challenge you may have heard of, if anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. 
It's a strong challenge. And then we come into Luke 15 from our passage this morning. So Luke 15 in our passage this morning, there's this crowd around Jesus of all these different types of people. And so what I want to do is I want to look at and spend some time understanding these people who are there. Are you with me on this? Excellent. So it it even starts in the first two verses, verse 1 and 2, just telling us who's there. So it kind of makes it easy, but we're going to dig into it. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So I'm going to walk us through a couple... um, Different people groups here we see in the crowd. The first is the tax collectors. And I grew up in church. I learned a little bit about the tax collectors of this time. And, you know, one of the most famous interactions Jesus has with the tax collector is Zacchaeus. You know, we all learned that song. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Did you ever learn that? Yeah. And, and it was the idea, and I always learned this, that Rome would tax somebody. They would say, you know, I, I need, say, $10 from this person. And the tax collector would say, you owe 20. And give 10 to Rome and pocket the other 10. And, and so they were kind of seen as thieves. And I kind of understood that. But let me tell you, that's not all the story. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. We have to understand kind of history in the Roman Empire to understand even more to how they're viewed. See, the the Roman Empire went from England, right, all the way down past Turkey and then down into Africa. That's a pretty large landmass. Like, even for 2019 today, it's a pretty large landmass. And we live in California. It's a pretty large state, right, from San Diego all the way up to Oregon. It's, It's a pretty good plot of land. And uh, just imagine if there was a revolt. Let's pick on Texas real quick, just, just because. And I, I have family from Texas and friends from Texas, so it's okay. But there's always the joke, right, that, that, that Texas wants to become its own nation, right? There's always that joke. So what if they tried, and they tried to do it through violent means of revolt? How quickly do you think Washington, D.C. would be scrambling jets and sending and just squashing that revolt. It would happen quickly. It would happen quickly. But imagine you're in the first century in Rome if a revolt broke out in one part of the empire, it could take up to six months to get there. And so the way in which they kept revolts at bay like this was through a giant military. They had a giant military and soldiers, and they were very pragmatic about it, where they were actually okay, Rome was okay turning a blind eye to some of the, I guess you could say, bullying, maybe murderous ways of some of the soldiers. And so it might be common that one of these soldiers has bullied somebody, murdered somebody, maybe raped somebody that you knew, and Rome has done nothing about it. And the way that this military was funded was through the tax collectors. So imagine if you knew somebody who was brutally attacked or whatever by one of these soldiers, and that was funded by one of these tax collectors. Do you think you would like these tax collectors? Absolutely not. So we see the tax collectors there, and then we see the sinners. 
It just says the sinners. Now, we hear this in 2019, and you may think to yourself, and the majority of this room might think sinners. We're all sinners in need of Jesus, right? Well, amen. But in that time, the sinners were actually a class of people. And you became a class of people known as the sinners. Most likely if you had sickness, blindness, uh, you were crippled, um, maybe you had leprosy. And the belief was that your sin or the sin of your parents is what brought on the sickness. And this is why in Mark 9, somebody asked Jesus, when, he, when there's a blind man there, somebody asked Jesus, is it because of his sin or the sin of his parents that he's blind? But it's not just sickness that puts you in this camp. It's also you choosing lifestyle choices that will put you in there, such as prostitution. And you would know you were part of the sinner's class because... From the synagogue, the religious leaders would tell you, and they would announce it loudly, you are not welcome. And if you were part of the sinner's class because you made a lifestyle decision that put you there, and say you wanted to repent and be reconciled back in your community, you know, and you would know that the religious leaders would make it hard for you. You would have to earn your way back. You would have to do penance to be received back into community as an act of reconciliation and repentance on your part. And so this is a reality of that group there. And then lastly, we see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I'm not going to sit on this for too terribly long because a lot of us know a lot about this and see interactions with Jesus. But I do want to approach one misconception. And this, this may help us dig into what the problem actually is. Jesus actually doesn't have a problem with the role or the title of Pharisee. And, and, and we see this through Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that came to Jesus by night, but he shows up two other times in John. One, he's burying Jesus with Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. The other one is Paul. Even after his conversion, we see in Acts, he stands before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee. So it's not necessarily the role or the title of Pharisee that Jesus is confronting. What Jesus confronts that he has a problem with is self-righteousness and hypocrisy at the expense of other people. And so we're going to see that play out here in these parables as we walk through them. And today we heard the first two, the lost sheep. Let me just highlight a few things in here. The lost sheep actually, it's about a shepherd and there's a reason why. And we talked about this a couple months ago. I don't know if you remember when we were in John 10. And it's, it's actually from Ezekiel 34 where it's a prophecy about the shepherds that were left to tend the sheep and did a horrible job. I mean, the sheep are scattering, uh, the wolves are eating them. And what, what Ezekiel 34 does is it actually prophesies of the good shepherd that is to come. And so there's a reason why with the religious leaders there at the time, Jesus would be using this parable. And so he tells this parable, the story of a shepherd who leaves the 99 in the wilderness that are totally found in, okay, he leaves them to go find the one. And I think to myself, 
And I, I spent some time in Silicon Valley and through some of my leadership training and even through some of my past leadership experiences, when there's so much going on and so many people involved in different teams and different tasks happening for different, you know, time restraints, you even think to yourself, something's going to drop and that's okay. I mean, I don't know about some of you who own businesses or have owned businesses. When there's a lot going on, you just know something is going to drop and that's okay. But when I hear about a shepherd that has the majority, the 99, and, and leaves the 99 to save the one, to me and how my mind works, that seems reckless. It seems like you would put the 99 at risk just for the one? And what Jesus is doing is saying that in my kingdom, I do things differently. And the way the Father's heart works sometimes goes different than the way we would expect. So he seeks after the sheep. He finds the sheep, takes them home, and throws a party. And we see that in a couple of these parables here. A giant celebration. Then we see the parable of the lost coin. Lady loses her coin. She's looking all over the house for it, sweeping for it, you know, maybe turning over furniture. We've all lost something. I, I mean, my family used to joke. I used to leave, lose my keys every morning when we were in Arizona. It's just like that, that panic, like, where is it? And then the celebration when you find it. And in this parable, she invites all of her neighbors and, and, and brings them over for a celebration. And then we get to the parable of the lost son. And uh, I'm going to walk us through this, and here's why it's important, is because it's so detailed in the way Jesus speaks to everyone that we just saw was in the crowd. Starting in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me your share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I think of myself, if my son said, give me, give me my my share now, I'd be like, no, go to your room. <laughs> but we see that God, at first in these first couple verses here of the paragraph, we see that God is a God who just graciously says, okay, if that's what you want. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in God's character here. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen in the country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I want us to understand that when we walk away from the Father. Sometimes living in a filthy way seems like that's what we need, and even to the point sometimes that's what we desire. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I want us to sit here for a minute and remember how I said that he asked for his portion of the estate and the father just said, okay, if that's what you want. See, God's grace sometimes is handing us over 
to the desires in our heart, knowing that consequences are going to come. He hands us over to the consequences of our own destruction will, of our own destructive will, because he knows that it will tire us out and bring us back. In recovery, this is called rock bottom. And the Bible actually in Romans 1, and, and you may have never heard this, but this is a unique word that it uses. It's actually God's wrath and judgment. I could preach a whole sermon on this, but here's what I want to say. I want to speak to the people in the room, and I'm included in this because I struggle with this. That sometimes we have this view that God is just waiting for us to strike us down with a lightning bolt with every mistake that we make. That he's always up there angry and we're just trying to do works or this, that, or the other to keep him from being mad at us. But what this tells us is that God graciously, lovingly, sometimes hands us over to our desires. And he knows in his sovereignty that it'll tire us out. And bring us back. I don't know how he knows. I don't know how all that works. He's God. I'm not. But his character is a character of one who is gracious and loving. Verse 18. I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up. And went to his father. My guess is at this point in the story, because of what I know about the interaction so far, that the religious leaders are thinking to themselves, that's right, Jesus. You show them what happens when they mess up. And they're just expecting that the father is going to make him work for it. The other thing that I find interesting here that Jesus says purposefully is that the brother, the, the, the son here is, is actually rehearsing a speech. How many of you rehearsed a speech when you knew that you were going to be in trouble and you had to confront somebody? <laughs> so in 2010, uh, I went to one of my best friends from growing up's wedding. And I'm going to share a story with you. Just bear with me. <laughs> I'm not endorsing any of this behavior. I'm just helping you understand what was going through my heart. So my, my, I, I, we're at this reception. Kelly's there. James is maybe two. We're at the reception after the wedding. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, can I have a picture with you to send to my daughter? And he introduces himself. And I just turn white. Just absolutely white. And then he begins to tell this story to all the people at my table, including my wife. So I'm going to share the story with you. Uh, he has a daughter by the name of Nicole. And Nicole is one of my friends, and, and they lived in a Teller County in Colorado, which is this county in the mountains with a couple different towns, and my mom lives there. And so this is beginning of senior year. I go up to stay with my mom for a weekend, and it turns out that his daughter, who was a friend of mine, had a bunch of friends over, and I'm friends with them too. And they're like, hey, why don't you pick us up for lunch and take us to lunch? So I was like, okay, uh, let's go to lunch. And so I pick them up. I take them to lunch. And uh, we go to this Mexican food, uh, Mexican restaurant in, in one of the towns that's there. Great food. 
But one of the things that they're known for are their slushies. They have these like fruity slushies and um, they have like peach and they even have a coconut flavor that's really, really good. And we think to ourselves, her dad's away for most of the day. I mean, he was hours away on the other side of the state. We think to ourselves, he has a cabinet with lots of adult beverage options. Let's take them back and let's just add a little something to them. So we order our, our slushies, we go back to their house, and we open the cabinet and we begin adding. Before we can even have a sip, he walks in the door. And he's just like, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, you're in trouble. He's like, I'm calling all your parents, you know. And so I tell him, hey, my mom, she just lives 15 minutes up the road. And, and uh, you know, he's like, are you okay to drive? I said, I didn't have any. They, they said, yeah, he didn't have any. So I have to drive for 15 minutes knowing that I'm going to walk in the door and that he will have called my mom in that time. My heart's just pounding. (laughs) And when I read this and I picture what the lost son was going through as he was walking home, I just get a little glimpse of that. And I'm sure many of us have been there as well. Continue on. But while he was still off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, I want to talk about this just briefly. I got to work with a guy who was an expert on Middle Eastern honor and shame culture to understand what would bring honor and shame based on people's postures and how they would function in in a Middle Eastern culture. And running outside of your house for a man of the stature and giving your son a kiss in this way would actually bring shame and dishonor on you. So here's what we actually see. We actually see a picture of the atonement here. The fact that the father would endure shame in order to bring back and reconcile his son who was lost. And I want us to think about that as we think about the heart of our father. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer am worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So there's a celebration again, just like the other parables, and even before he can get his speech, he's been rehearsing out. It's like his dad just said, stop it, and called for the celebration. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. 
I don't want to sit too long on this, but the older brother here, Jesus, is purposely causing the older brother to represent the self-righteous here, just like what he saw in the religious leaders. And notice that Jesus points out that the self-righteous don't want to join the party. As a matter of fact, sometimes they'd rather stay outside of the party and talk bad or poorly about what's happening in the party. And this is very intentional on Jesus' part. Verse 28, the older brother became very angry and he refused to go in. Have you ever had a kid who's like refused to come out of their room but everyone's having a good time? It doesn't really affect you. It just affects them. But we see the father here. See, there's something here Jesus is showing us. And that's that it's not just the younger brother that walked away and was lost. It's also the older brother who's lost and standing outside of the party of the kingdom. The father comes outside again then, and just like he engaged the lost brother, he decides to engage the older brother and invite him. See, there's misconceptions here that Jesus in Scripture, and for good reason, I think, in, in the way in which we're trying to at times counteract what I would say self-righteousness and religiosity, we, 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 we tend to push that Jesus is, is all about the poor and the marginalized, but I would say that Jesus' invitation is to everyone, including people like Nicodemus. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I find it interesting that he uses the word slaving. I mean, like he's really thinking that he has to earn this blessing from his father. That you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So the fattened calf is slaughtered and a party's happening, and all he could think about is a little goat. I think what happens sometimes in our self-righteousness, and I'm there a lot, is that we miss out on the blessing of the moment of what God's doing because it's not part of our vision of what we can earn. Verse 30, but when the son of yours who squandered, notice he says a son of yours. He doesn't even say my brother. <laughs> he says, notice the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because, and he turns it here, this brother of yours was dead. Think about that. He turns and says, this brother of yours. Think of how much in our society today we draw lines in people groups and say, they're not one of us. They're not whatever. One of my favorite songs, there's a, a group that writes to the, to the church calendar, a liturgical group. Uh, they have a song that says, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. The father here spins it and says, this is your brother. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Did you catch that? He said, you, always, uh, you are always with me. 
and everything I have is yours. How often do we forget that we don't have to earn a blessing for the future through religious or self-righteous acts? See, if we are followers of Jesus, the blessing of being his children is available to us now. He loves us and blesses us now. Those who feel like they have to earn or have earned God's favor can rest in the fact, and it's hard, but this is part of the good news, that we can't earn it. It's available there because of who he is and not what we can do. See, for those who have walked away from God, you don't have to earn your way back. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to, to pay your price. You don't have to rehearse your speech then to pitch to God in hopes that you could sell him on bringing you back. He is looking for you. He is watching for you. He has endured shame to meet you and bring you back. And there will be a huge party when you return. Will you return? And to both those who have walked away from God and those who are trying to earn God's favor and blessing through self-righteous acts, which is, at times, we are all in one of those camps. We have all walked away from God, and, and both of those camps attempt to do things in their own way. And the Father loves us more than we will ever know. And his love and grace offers blessing now that we have not earned and we cannot earn. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are God, you are sovereign, that you have a plan. But more than that, God, in your grace and in your good news, you endured shame to bring reconciliation. And so, God, by your heart, may we rest in the fact that you are a God who, if we are far off and we have ran from you, you are seeking, waiting for us, longing for us, even running to us to bring us back. God, may it not be in ways in which we just wear ourselves out by our sin. But God, may, you, may we hear your call even now if we are there. And God, for those of us, including God, myself, who judge oftentimes and are self-righteous and think that because we do this, that, and the other, we have earned some sort of status. God, may we learn and rest in the good news God, that it's about who you are and your identity and what you have done. Thank you for being a God who offers love and compassion and grace to all. May we hear that voice no matter who we are and where we are this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen.